Hello there and welcome to the very first edition of Notes on Leadership with me, Carrie Fraze, and leadership coach Kristen Berry. During each show, we will be chatting to someone who's achieved perhaps a little bit more than the average person about their leadership story as told via the soundtrack to their life. During our discussions, our guests share memories of four songs which resonate at certain points in their life. The first half of the show is with me. We delve into our guest's backstory to find out what has shaped and inspired them. Kristen then takes over to discuss how their personal story has developed into their leadership story. We kick off this brand new show with one of the most exciting female leaders around, currently living in Barcelona. An entrepreneur by heart, a designer and biologist by training, Cecilia Tam founded and is currently a principal and future synthesist at Futurity, a research, design and development studio based in Barcelona. She was the Singularity University Barcelona Chapter Ambassador and recent fellow of SU at NASA Research Center at Ames in California and former senior social technologist at Alpha Telefonica, a moonshot factory with the aim of making the world a better place. Cecilia is also the founder of multiple companies, including Mob, Makers of Barcelona, a collaborative co-working community, and Fab Cafe, a new concept that brings digital fabrication tools to the everyday environment of a coffee shop. She's also the founder of allwomen.tech, an AI training school for women by women to build the next generation of women and tech. Cecilia lives in Poplar Noa in Barcelona with her partner, Mark, and her two daughters, Hannah and Noah. Welcome, Cecilia. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I had no idea how long that was. <laughs> That's only half your bio. It's quite incredible what you've achieved. You must have very good time management skills. I, you learn. You learn to, to have these uh, these amazing skills <laughs> as, as you go on in, in, in life. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a secret to time management, though? You Anything that is under two minutes, you do it right away. Okay. Everything, everything else, it just puts in the bucket. And when when the kids are in bed, when I have a lunch break, when I, and then I just get to them when I get to them. What about delegation? Yes, yes. So big chunks of stuff that I think other people can do or that I could teach them to do. Um, absolutely. Delegation is a massive part of it. And I, I wanted to iterate that even though that list is really long, uh, they they required massive team of people, uh, uh, partnerships, uh, friends, uh, co-founders. And, and I, I think I have been extremely lucky to, to be surrounded with really amazing and capable people that I could rely on. Yeah, it really is a very impressive set of achievements. How much of what you have done would you say was in your sights at an early age? Zero. Really? <laughs> Absolutely zero. I thought, I, I'm Chinese by, by blood, so you, you, you should understand that Chinese family uh, have huge aspirations of only three professions that their kids could join. So they could either be a doctor, they could be an eye banker, so this is back then, uh, and then a lawyer. Nothing else mattered, nothing else could be in their, you know, in, in their kids' um, uh, future world. Uh, and so I chose, I wanted to be a doctor. I told my parents that I was going to a doctor and I actually went, uh, studied medicine uh, earlier on. Um, I just didn't get good enough grades <laughs> and so I had to pivot. And, uh, and I realized uh, that it's, life is really not a linear journey, right? And I, I think from, from then moment on, that first pivot, everything else had been pivot. But it's not, so much as, it's not so much as meandering as much as every one of these experiences really accumulate into who I am now and what I do now. Now, it's evidently been a very challenging year for almost everyone. How would you say the health crisis has affected your businesses? And as someone who is always looking ahead, how do you think we can all learn from what's happened over the last year or so? I think uh, the pandemic 
open up a, a couple of uh, big questions for us. Uh, and one of the things is that we have noticed, I'm in the business of future. Um, and so we, we, we create, we, we try to make, uh, you know, visions and strategies and understanding what the, the uh, pretty much trying to hone down on the uh, uncertainties um, and trying to figure out what, you know, what are some of the bases that we can hold on to and what we can leverage and move forward, right? Um, the pandemic brought a lot of questions that we did not anticipate. And so one of the major issue, uh, one of the major things is that we notice a lot of companies uh, previously, pre pre-COVID, uh, they had certain boundaries. And then during COVID, all of a sudden they realized these boundaries could be pushed, could be reestablished, could be questioned, uh, things that they could not have had done if it wasn't for COVID. And so because all of a sudden, you know, because the ability to, to question these things, we establishing these boundaries is now a possibility. And so that is happening. And that had helped us uh, because they questioned it. They need help in answering those questions. And so it had actually helped us uh, because there is now a need to answer uncertainties or to define how those uncertainties could be used as an opportunity and not as a uh, as a disadvantage. So it's potentially an exciting time then to be working in oh. tech. Absolutely, absolutely. Another thing that I think is really interesting that we have noticed is that all of a sudden things that seemingly was a far future opportunity then had been pulled in and, uh, you know, what was ha what, what could have happened 20, 30 years from now had been kind of expedited that could happen, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, right? So, uh, and that also is helping us in terms of uh, trying to define what those things are and how to bring it to companies and to organizations. Mm, some interesting times ahead. Let's move back in time now. I'm going to talk a bit about your childhood. You were born in Hong Kong and you grew up in Macau. You described yourself as a small town girl. Can you elaborate a little bit on what life was like in Macau? I love Macau. Uh, for those who have never heard of Macau, it's a tiny little peninsula uh, that used to be a Portuguese colony. Um, and the Portuguese have been there for almost 600 plus years. And so, you know, you're walking down Macau, you see on one street, you know, I live on the street called Xavier Pereira. I mean, couldn't be more Portuguese, right? But then we're also extremely Chinese. We're, you know, surrounded by Canton, uh, Hong Kong, all of the, the kind of the, the Chinese uh, cultural grounds. And so that juxtaposition for me in a very young age was natural. It was, you know, something that that uh, was part of my, my childhood. Um, but it was also very, very small. You could visit the whole entire Macau in under eight hours. This was at that time. So now it has doubled in size because of landfill. And now it's predominantly a, um, a casino. At that time also was a casino town. It's the Las Vegas of the East. I grew up in a casino. My Both of my parents worked in a casino. So it was, you know, I didn't, I don't think I had a typical <laughs> childhood. You know, I could play poker you know, since I was two years old. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> so it's, it's a very interesting place, and I'm very grateful to have that um, because I think one of the strengths of, uh, I think, my, m me, me now, or, or what made me now is this ability to bridge very, very, you know, opposite things. And so, you know, back then, you know, being in the, you know, uh, the, the Portuguese aspect, connecting with the, the East, the, the Chinese was, you know, something that was natural to me. And so I continue pushing this and, uh, you know, maybe we can talk about it later, but like biology versus architecture, you know, Spain and the U.S., you know, all of these juxtapositions for me, almost like a muscle, right? You work muscles when they're opposite and you pull them together. And, and I think that is my strength. That kind of like, you know, bridging is my strength. And your parents, they were both from Myanmar originally, yes. which is formerly Burma, of course. Tell us a bit about them. How do they meet? And, and 
what are they like? Oh, they're they're amazing people. Uh, I I don't give them credit enough. My they're Chinese Burmese, and so my my grandparents are Chinese. So there's a history of migration here. Um, my grandparents moved to Burma and had uh, so separate grandparents went to uh, went to Burma, and they both my parents grew up there. And uh, funny enough, my grandfather had a ruby mine, and uh, and had uh, my grandfather had twenty one kids. With four simultaneous wives. Sorry, Cecilia, say that again. How many children? 21. So at that time, having multiple wives was a status, you know, right. <laughs> uh, thing. So uh, my dad was, you know, one of the, the first grandmother. And my mom came from a more humble family. Her, her father was a, a doctor. But then, the you know, as most of us know, Myanmar has always been very um, unstable. And it was at that time as well. Uh, they had an opportunity to leave and that left, uh, they left at the, uh, at the time that they could, the, the door was open. Uh, but I, I did go back. I have families there. My uncle's there. Uh, I went back about 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And, and you know, I never, uh, I have never stopped thinking about the fact that if my parents hadn't left that particular moment when they could have left, I would have, I would have, my life would have been there and I would have never left. And I, and that would have been, I would have been happy because I would have not seen the outside world. I would not have done any of these things and I would not be the person I am today. So, uh, you know, these moments in life, you know, you, you think about it and you're like, wow, what a, what a big difference. No, mm, it's the sliding door scenario, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And you have two older brothers. Yes. What were the dynamics like growing up? What was it like being the youngest and a girl? It is hard, you know, because it's, uh, we, you know, my parents are great, but they are very traditional Chinese, <laughs> you know, parents. You know, I was the youngest. I was the girl. You know, I had to do the dishes. I had to make their beds, uh, you know, because I was the only girl. I had to wash the floor, you know, and at that time you would, you scrub the floor on the floor, you know, there were no brooms and stuff like this. So, but you didn't question because that, that was the time that women would do those things, right? Uh, but my mother was also an extremely entrepreneur. She had her own boutique and she had her own couple of different businesses. So she was kind of sort of like my, my role model, right? So there's this kind of like differences and, and uh, my brothers are my brothers. <laughs> they are who they are. Um, but I think it's funny because um, when we moved to the US, uh, when I was you know 14, we moved and they're older brothers. Uh, I think partially because I was at this age when I was still somewhat malleable. And then, you know, 16, 17, 18, they're a lot more kind of established. The identity have already been, you know, kind of stabilized. I, you know, I took those three years in kind of searching for, you know, who I am and what I can be, where they're still kind of holding on to this kind of like, you know, coach, uh, Macau and, and China, you know, mentality. So I think that was very, very different. Did that give you an advantage, though? I think so. Mm. I think so. I was able to kind of like absorb more. I was more malleable and I was definitely much more um, open to trying new things. Uh, and that was at that reflex. They're still in Atlanta. They're still, you know, living near my parents. And uh, yeah. And today, of course, it's about your story, your leadership story, but also about music. How important is or has been music in your life, would you say? I think... Music is important. I, I learned uh, to play piano, uh, and I, I love. I, but my relationship with music is isn't really proactive. It's much more, you know, uh, feed it to me. Uh, and I, and I've always uh, understand music via someone else. You know, a, a music teacher, a partner, a my child. Um, and so I have that kind of, uh, you know, indirect relationship with music, which is okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, let's go into your first song. Tell us about this one. This one is special. So this one uh, is, uh, I'm going to speak Chinese, because it's, it's Alan Tam, Tam, Tam Winglun. Uh, and he was a, a very popular uh, musician. He's still a popular musician uh, uh, in Hong Kong. And he had this song called Ngoi Joy Sam Chao, uh, which is uh, deep autumn, deep love in, in autumn. We moved to the U.S. Uh, around October, so that was the same kind of period of time. And he was sing, uh, singing about his, you know, separation from his partner and how it is meant to be. Uh, that memories will always be, you know, held close. And those words just resonated because I didn't know at that time that that was the last time I would be seeing uh, the nanny that I had lived for you know a lot very long time my friends uh some of my family i didn't know how long i was 14 you know i didn't really think about those things at that time um so that song every single time i hear it you know i i, I cry because that's that's what i remembered That's Love in Deep Autumn by Alan Tam, and you're listening to Notes on Leadership with me, Carrie Fraze, leadership coach Kristen Berry, and our guest today is entrepreneur, among many, many other things, Cecilia Tam. And Cecilia, you, you talked about your move from Macau to Georgia in the US when you were 13, and the people you left behind like the nanny. Would you say that was your first experience of loss, and do you remember how you felt at the oh, time? Oh, absolutely. It was a shock in the system. I didn't speak English. I mean, Macau, we learned uh, Portuguese. I did not, was I was not exposed to English. So I, I didn't speak the language. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't, the only, uh, the only American culture that I know was, was TV. And it's not even remotely uh, reflected on, on, you know, Georgia, <laughs> which is deep south uh, at that time. So it was a complete shock and it took, it took a while. So what was it like at school? What memories do you have of your school days? They weren't great, I have to say. I mean, uh, I at 14, I was in middle school. The last year, so eighth grade. So this was a time when, you know, kids are looking to identify themselves, who they are, you know, and, and sometimes uh, to identify themselves, they have to kind of be mean to others because that's how they establish, you know, their territory and their boundaries, right? Totally understandable. But me coming in, uh, you know, I... All of the things that, you know, I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm not blaming, but like things like being pushed around, you know, being put into lockers, <laughs> all those things happened to me. But I think they made me who I am. They made me strong and they made me, you know, trying to, you know, un establish my ground uh, and, and making me much stronger than I would have otherwise. Um, and so I'm, I'm even thankful for those experiences, right? You went on to study uh, biology at Emory University and you had dreams of becoming a neuroscientist. What was the specific appeal about that to you? I just, I was just told I had to study biology. I was told that I have to be a doctor. So that was, you know, I just, it was just a question of like, what kind of doctor you want it to be? And at that time, I was really interested in behavioral science. Uh, and so I, I actually interned in Yorkie's uh, primate center and worked with monkeys and, and tried to understand their behaviors and then migrated to rodents where I had an opportunity to study with a very, uh, very well-known uh, scientist at that time. And they were looking into, I'm going to go into slightly detail because it's super interesting, uh, how uh, voles, which is a, a kind of small mice, uh, there are two families of it. One, one, one family, they're monog monogamous and the other one is polygamous. 
ligaments. And my job was to kind of identify uh, their brain <laughs> compositions to see if this is something neurological. And, uh, and the, my, the scientist who was leading the study discovered the differences between oxytocin and vasopressin. And so the monogamous vole had oxytocin in their, in their brain, whereas the polygamous one had vasopressin. And so that was, I spent about a year and a half um, <laughs> slicing brains, you know, making markers. And uh, that was also, you know, an, an amazing experience that I, I would, you know, I'm very thankful for. And you went on to study, um, you did a master's uh, at Harvard in Boston, that was in architecture. What was the decision behind switching from pure science to mixing sort of, uh, science and art? I, I was very much on track to, to, to study uh, uh, medicine, uh, except that uh, in the US, uh, at that time, you have to take this thing called MCAT uh, to get into a medical school. I, I did that test, and I got the results from that test. And the result was that I have about 3% of a chance to get into medical school. I guess I didn't do all that well. And, uh, and then I was like, oh, I, I, I guess I'm not going to be going to medical school anymore. What are my other options? And at that time, I, I did a minor in art. And so I was like, oh, why don't I just go to architecture school? <laughs> and so I told my mom that. And so architecture is not one of the three <laughs> options that I had. <laughs> so my mom was obviously very upset. And she said to me, well, uh, Cecilia, unless you get into Harvard, you can forget about going to architecture school. And was she being serious at so, that time? So <laughs> I was very serious at the time. So I was like, okay, challenge accepted. <laughs> and then somehow, magically, I got accepted to Harvard um, and, and studied architecture. Incredible. It sounds like you like a challenge, Cecilia. Yes, yes. am, I, am I right? Or <laughs> Absolutely. am I right? <laughs> and from the States, you ended up in Barcelona. What, how did that transition happen? That, ah, oh, that's, uh, you know, my, my parents probably think I'm the, um, I'm the problem child, <laughs> you know, because I finished architecture school and then I was like, you know what, maybe architecture really isn't for me. Uh, but I was desperate for getting more worldly experiences, right? I've never really traveled and I wanted to see the world and I went backpacking in South America. And I, it was amazing. It was an eye-opener because I saw how people lived. Uh, and there was this kind of uh, understanding world in a very different perspective. Um, and, you know, while my time at Harvard was, you know, very important, but it was a very bubbled <laughs> environment and, and very privileged environment, right, where South America was absolutely the opposite. Uh, I also met my partner at the time. Um, and so kind of all the bits and pieces of, you know, there's a man involved. <laughs> of course, right. <laughs> and I also didn't want to come back to, to, to Boston or to Atlanta, right. So where where can I go next? So I we I ended up in Barcelona, where my part, former partner is from. <laughs> right. Okay. And as someone who's involved in changing the future, how well placed do you feel Barcelona is to be at the forefront of that movement? I think there are good things and bad things about Barcelona. Like every single city, right? There's no such thing as a perfect city. But I think Barcelona has a lot of good things to offer. And, and, and more and more, it's creating a very, very grounded and very rich ecosystem from, you know, entrepreneurs to, you know, to, to the scientific world, to the creative world. And all of these are almost ingredients to create new things. And I think it's very, very well positioned. Um, and, you know, not to mention like the, the culinary uh, uh, experiences that we have here, the wine, the beach, the weather. Blah, I, can't, I can't even, you know, go through the whole entire list of how wonderful Barcelona is. But then again, I live here, so. 
Yeah, we're all very lucky. We know that. Let's um, talk about your second song choice now. The second song is uh, Glenn Gold, um, and it is his cover of the the arias. Um, and, uh, and and that song is it's very special because this is a time when I was studying architecture, and uh, one of my my teacher Cecil Bauman, a very well known architect slash uh, engineer, had this really wonderful idea of, of interpreting a cube as a kind of like finding the patterns of this three by three nine by nine cube. Um, and for some reason, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't sit well. And I said, nope, I'm just going to, inter- you know, understand uh, patterns through music. And he looked at me. I was the only one that said no. <laughs> Everyone continued on this project on exploring the nine by nine cube. And then he said, if you can give me a reason why you would, you know, want to do this other than that, I will give you, you know, your your choice of uh, whatever you want to explore. And so I wrote down, you know, a couple pages of like evidence of why this is interesting. And I got accepted and I explored that particular uh, song in terms of understanding how spatial music can be. And uh, and so the song is my representation of uh, the rules are there for us to break and the rules are there for us to understand and then make our own interpretation of it. And so I'm always reminded of, you know, what rules are in, in our framework. You're listening to Notes on Leadership with me, Carrie Fraze, and leadership coach Kristen Berry. Our guest today is serial entrepreneur Cecilia Tam. And Cecilia, I'm amazed at just how much you achieved at a very young age. Your entrepreneurial skills were honed from the age of just 10 when you worked in a piano store. You also worked in a supermarket, in restaurants. You worked through college, and you've also worked as a model. Where did you get that work ethic? I have no idea. I see. I guess I see my mom, and she 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 was also working a lot. My parents worked a lot, um, and one one of the reasons why we needed a nanny is because bo- I had a, both of my parents working, which is very rare at the time in the Chinese society, to be honest. And so I think I learned a lot of my kind of entrepreneur, like you know, get get it going, you know, uh, hands on, and uh, through my through my parents. Was money an incentive? No, never, to be honest. And I've never really worried about money. Uh, and somehow I have this uh, mindset in mind that everything will always work out. Even when I have zero money in my bank account, everything will always work out. And it has more or less worked that way. So, And since then, you've obviously founded numerous companies, some of which we outlined in the introduction. It's a difficult question, I can imagine. But what do you feel has been your proudest achievement to date professionally? Wow. Uh, I would think that, uh, so all of these, all of these little companies, uh, I think what I've learned from them is that I, I love to make, I love to make companies. I love to make, you know, projects. I love to sew. I love, it doesn't really matter what I'm making. It could be a pair of pants, uh, a company, a code, uh, you know, a strategy. Uh, the, the process of creation is my favorite thing to do. Um, and I, I, if we go back into like, what, is, what would be my, my proudest achievement? I would say that in every single one of these, and I've mentioned it earlier, is that there, there, there's a massive team of people that I rely on. Um, and so every one of these uh, companies have always been that, you know, 
know, I found a partner through, uh, uh, you know, one of the uh, meetings or one of the, the events. And then, and then I seed them with ideas and I, I get it pushing a little bit and then they make it bigger and better than I would have ever imagined. And so that aspect of it, I think it's, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's my proudest moment. So that's one. And the other thing is that I, I get immense, um, immense uh, pleasure when I lift uh, the underdogs, when I kind of like help them, you know, do whatever, imagine and achieve. And just with a little bit of, you know, of tools or access or technologies or, 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 or knowledge, uh, if I see them latching on and then they do great things, that to me, it's like also amazing. But and is so that a reflection of your own background, do you think? I think so. Yeah. I, I think so. I think, you know, people often talk about uh, unicorns and, you know, how they have these massive exes. And I was like, no, I actually want to work on, you know, underdogs. <laughs> so I, I gave a talk on unicorn versus the underdog. And what we have um, forgotten is that they're, you know, we're all somewhat underdogs in one way or another, right? So what is that part that we can, you know, unleash and really use it um, as, as a leverage instead of, you know, as a, as, as a, uh, disability, and uh, I, I I talk about this all the time um, because it's my way of operating, which is this notion of trim tab. I don't know uh, I don't know if this is a good time to talk about it, but trim tab is a, a part of the airplane and, and on the boat. Uh, it's this little tiny flap that when you're uh, 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 flying or swimming across current, this flap will change your course of action. And so being an underdog, how do you leverage this adversarial current to make it your own and use it as, a, as power to kind of change the direction for me has always been key. Uh, and so all of this mysticism, all of these uh, initiatives, initiatives that I have done are using that as, as, a, as a strength. And if you could do it all again, would you change anything? No. I w the only thing that I would have uh, would change is I would have soon uh, I would have even started earlier my kind of entrepreneur trajectory. <laughs> I think I would have you know I've I also always talked about earlier than ten, <laughs> and, you know, in the womb. <laughs> um, but I would I oft I, I think I'm not the only one saying this, but I often think about like oh what if if I would have been born now. You know, uh, but you can always ask that question, right? You know, a hundred years from now, we would say, well, what if I live in that time? Um, and then I remind myself, with, uh, you know, thinking that uh, you really have to use the ingredients that you have at that moment to, to you know, uh, to have it work for you instead of always dreaming of what could possibly have, could, you know, could have happened a hundred years from now. So, yeah. In one of your TED Talks, you wanted to encourage us all to have a superpower to collaborate and do amazing things. What would be your hopes and aspirations for your two daughters? I want... It's so hard. <laughs> it's so, so hard. That's a, that's a really good question. I think, uh, first and foremost, I want them to be happy uh, and, and, and use their, uh, use their, I guess, their... Uh, whatever abilities that, that they have. Uh, and I, I do think that I have been, ha I have had a very privileged uh, life, you know, especially knowing, comparing to my cousins in Myanmar, for example, right? I know that I'm in a very privileged position and I know that, uh, uh, and the, one of the reasons why I'm so um, fixated in, in kind of helping this underdog is because I know that with being in this privileged role, I have the ability to help others. And so I am only hoping that they also see uh, their privilege uh, side of their, you know, their life and that their ability to help other people to, to, you know, do bigger things. And that's the only hope that I have aside from them being happy and whatnot. <laughs> Let's move on to your third song choice now. Tell us okay. about this one. 
My third song is a little tough uh, because this reminded me a time when uh, I was separated from my, uh, my, my partner. And uh, he's also the father of uh, the, the two girls that I have. Um, and so the song is called I Lava You. It's one of these uh, animation film shorts uh, that they played with. Uh, I think it was one of these, uh, uh, what was it called? The, the Disney shorts? Uh, I can't remember the name. Uh, and they played it in the movie. And, uh, and so I, it was a really simple song. And I learned to play it in the ukulele. And it had like two or three chords. And I was really proud of myself. I was like, yes, I, I learned ukulele. But every time I played it, my little one, and that time she was only five years old, she, she would slam the door. She would run into the room and she would slam the door. And that happened for a good year and a half. I had no idea. I just thought she was, you know, a kid. She had a hammer tantrum, you know, didn't really think twice. And one day she was so upset that she would just cried for hours. So I finally set her down and I said, Noah, what is, what is the matter with you? You have to tell me. And she said, this song was playing when you and daddy broke up. This is the song that always reminds me of you guys separating. And I never play that song again, ever. I put it away. Uh, you know, it was, you know, it was a close to, but it reminded me how uh, these songs, just like the you know, autumn, fall, um, love in fall, uh, autumn, a deep, a deep autumn, uh, these songs, you know, retrieve memories uh, the same way that they had retrieved it for me. She saw, also have these, you know, memories that, uh, that she, she should have control of when she wants to be remembered, not, you know, from, playing the song so yeah You're listening to Notes on Leadership with me, Carrie Fraze, leadership coach Kristen Berry, and our guest entrepreneur, company founder and director, mentor, among many other things, Cecilia Tam. I now pass the mic over to Kristen, who's been listening to my chat with Cecilia. And Kristen, what are your initial thoughts on Cecilia's stories? Is it a typical leadership story or are there no typical leadership stories? Well, I mean, my first thoughts are, wow, she's amazing. <laughs> it's really been a pleasure to, to listen here and 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 take in everything that, that you've done, Cecilia. And no, it's not a typical leadership story, in part because it's an amazing story that's really across oceans, um, and not everybody does that, but also because I don't think there is a typical leadership story. Everybody's is, is special. And I, th I think that's, that's the way I approach leadership as in my coaching and in my teaching is, is that I believe that in a leadership style is, is very personal Precisely because each of our experiences, both the positive and the negative, as you you talked about, Cecilia, um, make us unique. We take different things from them, and different people take different things from even the same situation. Um, so, all of that lends to developing our own unique style of leadership. Um, so, I was thinking maybe with that in mind, we could dig in just a little more. And, and, and Carrie did an amazing sort of introduction to how the things you've been through have influenced who you are today. Um, what do you think about digging in a little more with relationship to who you are as a leader? I absolutely love to. Yeah, let's okay. do it. Okay. Okay. Before we go on, I, I just was left thinking about, so which part of you is the underdog? Oh, so, so many. <laughs> so, so a lot of the different parts. Yeah. And I will, may I share a story with you? And sure. this is, 
I think it was very pivotal of my uh, of my transformation, especially when I came to Barcelona. Mm. Uh, and that was, you know, 20 years ago. I didn't speak the language. I didn't speak Spanish, not not even talking about Catalan. But uh, I didn't know anyone. I didn't know where, you know, which direction I, I, I should be investing my time in. And I couldn't get a job uh, as an architect. <laughs> uh, and so it was a rough time. Um, and, and also, I think I was kind of putting myself in the victim mode, you know, poor me, you know, uh, a, a woman in a man's world, you know, a minority, poor Cece, you know, she's an immigrant, uh, you know, all of these labels that I impose on myself, to be honest. I mean, no one really did anything to me at the time. It was just easier for me to, to say that, oh, I'm not achieving my life's goal because, you know, I have, I've been a victim, right? And then I think, it's a moment I realized um, that I couldn't think that way because it's not viable. It's not a viable option for me. Uh, and so I thought uh, that while I can't change how other people see me or even they see me this way, it didn't really matter. Um, I, I told myself that uh, I could change the way I see myself. And so from there, uh, you know, all those were underdogs. All those were underdogs that I imposed on myself. And then I said, well, maybe I'm not, you know, an immigrant. Uh, you know, I am a, an international person, you know. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm not a minority. Maybe I'm unique. Um, and so I started flipping all of these labels. And I said, you yeah, know, if I see myself as an underdog, I will always be an underdog. But if I uh, think that those qualities of me being an underdog could also be a unique value uh, for me, then I have, a, I have a lot more to offer, right? Um, and so that was kind of pivotal. That's amazing. And, and I have to tell you that, you know, you said you've been here in Barcelona for 20 years, and I've been here for 14, and I went through a very similar process. So I really relate to you, where I couldn't do what I was trained to do and had to recreate myself. But before that happens, I, I relate to that. Yeah. You know, the, there's the whole process of, I, I can't. I, I can't. Right. 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 And, and, and it's true that those messages that we send ourselves have a lot of power over us if we let them. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing that I have learned is that once I labeled myself the way I want to be labeled, then other people see me in that light. And the, the other thing I wanted to look at is, is something on your personal website that says, I am a maker, an entrepreneur, a mother an advisor, a mentor, but above all, a future synthesist. And in the words of your daughter, she said, you work for the future. I love that. <laughs> I think that's great. Um, what, what's it like for you as, as a leader to incorporate all those faces of who you are, all those facets? Um, you know, you include a mother right between advisor and entrepreneur on that list. If I take any one of those things out, it's not CC anymore. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't be who I am without my, my kids. I, I've learned so much. I've learned mm. so, so much yeah. from them, right? So uh, I think those are parts of me that needs to be, you know, people often often think about how, you know, uh, you know, there's a very, very hard line between work and then life. Um, and I really don't see this way. Like my, my work is my life and my life is my work. You know, I'm doing what I'm doing because I want a better world for my kids. Uh, and, and my kids are teaching me things that I can reincorporate in my work. So there's not that, you know, that strong line for me. So I definitely think that uh, by definition, uh, and I and and we we really f tried really hard to use the word synthesis, 
because all of the things that I have listed, synthesizing is how do I bring all of these parts in my work? And, and the future component is like, I'm just going to recombine all of these different ingredients and, and experiences and knowledge into new things that, that have values in the future. Wow, that's great. So I, I, I like that. I like the synthesis word that you're using. And it, it brings me back to something you said earlier with Carrie about bridging, right? Being the bridge. Mm-hmm. You see yourself, you know, in bridging things that nece- don't necessarily go together. And that, that's really what innovation is about. Absolutely. Um, If you take apart the word and and even go uh, look at, you know, what is the opposite of synthesizing, right? It's analyzing. And analyzing is when you break apart uh, uh, different things uh, into its different parts and understanding those different parts individually. Well, synthesizing will be taking those parts, but we combine them in ways that you've never seen before, right? So, uh, while I kind of see uh, the an, an, an analyzing uh, side much more rigorous, much more scientific, much more you know grounded in structure, well, uh, synthesizing is much more creative and much more you know conceptual and abstract because it's, it's a it's a creative exercise, and so it goes back into the bridging part, right? How do you bridge these two? You're not taught at school to, to you know, be creative and, and be scientific at the same time, right? And, uh, and we often say what we do, we're rigorously imaginative. This is like our kind of approach to everything that we do. Wow, I love that, rigorously imaginative. And, and I'm hearing then, for you, it's about bringing pieces together more than it is about separating them. Is that am I, is that a right? Am I correct? No, it's it's actually both. Both. Um, and you so enjoy my, both. Uh, you I feel do, like you do both. I do the synthesizing part, and I have partners that are do that that are kind of mm-hmm. very good at uh, the analyzing part. So right, okay. So, but for you, you're more of the synthesizer. Absolutely, got yes. it. That's that's what I was going yes. for. But and I and I love that because that's also sort of what you said that behind all of this, there's a team. Yes, absolutely. Which is ultimately what makes you a leader. Right. Right. <laughs> right? A leader has yeah. a team. Yeah. Okay. And so in all of this, as I was listening to you talk, the other thing I was doing, which, which I work a lot with clients on, is, 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 is to thinking about their values. And I was listening, and, and I, you know, I heard a lot of your values coming through really loud and clear. Um, challenge that you value. Yeah? yeah. <laughs> you love a good challenge. Love a good challenge. Yes. Motivates you? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and even... Uh, sometimes it's, it's problematic because I am absolutely relentless until that thing is solved. Got it. A dog with a bone. Yes. <laughs> <I> will <laughs> if you will. <laughs> okay. Learning. Yes. Learning. Value of learning. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and change as a value. Yeah? Yeah. Change as an opportunity. Okay. Change as an opportunity. Okay. All right. I heard travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in different cultures. Family. Family mm-hmm. comes up a lot for you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you said, you know, even taking any part of that, mother out as a leader, you know, how does family and being a mother influence how, who you are as a leader? Uh, I think, you know, seeing my kids... I uh, want a lot of what we do at, uh, at what we do is looking into future. And we all often talk about future, but in a pluralistic sense. So it's not just my future mm-hmm. or your future, but everyone's future. Um, and we look at the lens of, uh, you know, um, uh, Sino-futurism, uh, feminine futurism, Arab futurism, you know, like, okay, well, how would all these different cultures receive futures, right? Um, but we also have to look in the lens through my kids, for example, right? What would be the next generation, their, what did their future look like? Um, and so I 
you know, <laughs> I use my kids as a as a way to see it through their lens and understanding their the, their future through you know their their eyes. And uh, and I absolutely valued their. Um, you know, I, I'm not using my kids professionally, but <laughs> <laughs> I do sometimes. But it is a very different world compared to mine. Um, and so being having that, it's like uh, being able to see through that lens. It's 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 a it's another superpower. Well, and really, it's almost another way of saying of empathy, putting yes. yourself in in somebody else's shoes to be able to look. And in 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 an innovation process, empathy has a huge role. Mm-hmm. I mean, right? Being able to, who who's my target client and, and what, what are, are their needs and, and their pain points. Their pain and, points correct. exactly. And so empathy, you know, and I think I think it's the same with a team, right? How do you use empathy around your team, your different teams? We, I think it's very core. Um, in fact, currently we have a, an empathy tech project trying to, trying to use tools and technologies as a way for us to uh, be in someone else's skin, mm-hmm. uh, have their experiences, and, and even soft, you know, not just um, passively receiving those emotions and feelings, if not actively trying to counter uh, or, or even solve a, a particular issues that, that, uh, that have basis on, on uh, on the on, on that um, uh, problem. Okay. Okay. Great. So so it sounds like yes, you're you're very aware of of the importance of empathy in dealing with your teams and dealing with. And I think it's something for me. It's super interesting uh, because that that definition is also shifting. Meaning that uh, right now, for example, we're talking about uh, something as simple as gender, right, and, and identity, and uh, the discourse is shifting from a binary, you know, man. Woman. women into uh, a range right and right. into something that is very dynamic because uh and 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 being you know in the future industry we have to not look at, not look at what is happening now but what is going to happen in five ten years uh 15 years from now right so and what one of the things that we are seeing is that because the, there is now a range and there's a a, a di- dynamicism in it uh, five years from now, you could easily have someone profile would say, well, I am, I, I identify as female at 9 a.m. in the morning, but, you know, in the afternoon, I would identify as non-binary. And then, at you know, tomorrow I am pangendered, right? So how would you deal with that kind of new generations upcoming with that kind of a profile? Uh, and companies are not even remotely, uh, you know, aware of what is happening, let alone com- uh, governments and, and, and organizations. How do you deal with these generations of these new typologies of people, right? Mm-hmm. And so those things are super interesting for me. Being able to test those perspective now will give them a glimpse of how to prepare for those future. Wow, that's an, that's amazing. That's that's super interesting. Well, and it really is very human because you know people who aren't so tech savvy or involved in technology may be thinking. You know, it's it's very analytical, like you said. It's very numbers driven, or it's very machine sort of oriented. But what you're talking about is people. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and and it it sounds really sci-fi, but all of the things that is happening now, all they all have some uh, some historical you know comparison mm-hmm. to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and in our you know in our exploration, we when we look at gender, we also looked at we, we often we 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 use what is called edge cases and and try to understand okay, well yes, there's this dynamism in it and there's a range, but what if say in the future an AI wants to 
be part of this conversation? Can you be a gender AI? You know, like really push the limit, right? And then there are all, all there are even conversations right now pushing the limit and say, no, I identify as a dog. I identify as a plant, right? Then you're really, really like questioning things that you know, let alone, you know, the, the, the previous conversation, we're not prepared for that. So imagine how we can, how we can prepare that conversation. But um, what I really wanted to get into is that I have forgotten. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I had a no. thesis. <laughs> I, that's okay. It was interesting. What you talked about it. was very interesting. It's fascinating. No, it is. It's really, it's really amazing. And, and my jaw is just dropping because oh, it's no, true. It's, yeah. I remember. So what I wanted to say was that, uh, so if you look at historically how we give rights to people, because essentially okay, you're, right. you're trying to give uh, identity and rights are, you know, go hand in hand. We look back and we say, well, how did we deal with slaves? How did we deal with, you know, rights for women? And then you can, you can basically trace their trajectory and say, well, when, when did slaves have purchasing power? When did, or, or they have their freedom? When did they have their purchasing power? When did they have voting rights? When did they, and if you trace it back, you can pretty much, you know, uh, overlap the same trajectory and trying to understand, well, how is it going to apply to, say, in the future, can plant have autonomy? Can plant have rights? Can plants have a uh, vote? Can they plant, you know, and all of these questions will come up again and again and again in every single one of the, you know, uh, explorations or uh, you know, questioning of whether something can have rights or identity or equality, so on and so forth. Wow, that's that's absolutely amazing. And, and I, I think it's so interesting how it's learning from history, too. I mean, there's so many aspects that come in. So you're talking about that. And when we, we talk about leadership, too, we talk about sort of the typical, or, or you know, last century manager, leader, um, very reactionary, sort of this is how things are done, and so that's how we will respond to each thing. And that's not really working in our VUCA, vol the volatile, you know, uncertain world that we're in. So what we need are the creative leaders, and that's exactly what you're saying is, yes, we learn from the past, and we need to then bring things together, right, Absolutely. To, to, to create new solutions and yes. to look at things from new perspectives. Yeah, um, uh -huh. but that's not an easy job. Uh, but I, yes. Because that particular model was literally modeled from mm -hmm. uh, pre-industrial or industrial right. revolution, right? So right. The, the, the mass uh, production, even, you know, that transformed into mass education. And the, the, our classroom yeah. nowadays is still based on that yes. model. And, and so are most businesses. Exactly. So mass, mm -hmm. <laughs> mass education transformed into these corporations that mm -hmm. are still operating in these kind of legacy, very, mm -hmm. very uh, 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 pyramid-like or hierarchical-like right. structure, right? So how do you break that? And I often talk about the social train. To me, this is like the social train. Uh, the train with the, the train and the tracks uh, laid off, right? And, and we all still get onto this train. In fact, we put my, our kids into this train, right? And this train evolves as, you know, uh, going to school, getting good grades so that we can go to good universities, get good grades so that we can get a good job, uh, so that we can earn the money to buy that house, you know, with that picket fence, maybe not in Barcelona, but <laughs> uh, marry someone, live happily ever after. after. But we know that doesn't work anymore because we are putting kids at school, learning things that probably going to be obsolete in no time. And then going to university, same thing, totally unprepared, getting a job that they probably going to hate, uh, working with people that they're not going to enjoy, making the money and buying things that they don't need and, and uh, really ruining, you know, the earth. Meanwhile, uh, marrying someone that they were probably going to get divorced. So, you know, so the whole entire system is broken. Right. So you said in a 2018 talk in Latvia that good entrepreneurs make money, 
great entrepreneurs make leaders, true entrepreneurs make impact. So how does what you're doing, bridging all these different projects, um, tie into your purpose and the impact you want to make? I often, you know, I've mentioned many, many times about underdog uh, and, and that creating, uh, giving them capabilities, giving them tools, giving them knowledge. Uh, for me, those are impactful results that I know how to achieve. Um, and so when I made that statement, what I've noticed is that, you know, uh, while you can make money all the time, and it goes back into this, you know, social train, right? What do you need money for? You need money for to be able to buy X, Y, and Z. Why do you want to be a leader? You be a leader so that you can train other people to, to think certain way but when you become impactful and you still have those other you know uh, being a leader and, and making money making sustainable businesses and you're making impact that's when you are really uh, seeding uh, those leaders that you have trained uh, giving them capabilities and at the same time creating sustainable businesses and you know I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do it is probably one of the hardest thing to do to create sustainable businesses that are impactful that building a community of leaders that is <laughs> My true, if I have a true passion, and that 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 is the, the one thing that I have uh, really trying to build. Um, and I, I say that because one of the future kind of scenarios that I'm already seeing is this world, which we were calling machine economy. And I'm not going to dive into it, but the machine economy is when machines can make money uh, on their own or make transactions on their own. So, you know, you're, my, my dishwasher can buy maintenance from uh, a maintenance bot for example, right? So you can already imagine in that world when you have optimization, when you have intelligence, when you have all these autonomy, uh, you know, machines, what are they really good for? They can, they, they're probably going to be really good at making money. And we have evidence of that because there are bots uh, making money on, 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 on the trading industry, right? Uh, and so in that world, if machines can make money and they can probably make money a whole lot better than we making money, what would money represent, mm -hmm. right? And what, why do we even care about money? But if we're working based on purpose and based on impact, they're not there. It's not values that machines have. Not, not 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 that I know of now. Right? Not in the immediate future. If we can ground our work based on impact and purpose, then you know we we would have a reason to to do what we do. There is much less reason for for businesses to be working without purpose now. Absolutely. People just I think people are beginning to slowly realize that. But leaders like you need to be at the forefront waving that flag Absolutely. for sure yeah. for sure so unfortunately i think we have to go into our last song um and uh, because i'd love to ask you a million more questions but uh you've chosen a fourth song and this one sort of sums up maybe some, your your life and, and your experiences and your leadership style and and in your projects could you tell us about it so this song is very special. It's canon. I learned it uh, the first time when I started working in a, a piano store, in a music store. So that was that must have been when I was 12, 10, 12 years old. And um, I picked this song because I still know how to play it. Uh, and I, I play it often. I play it whenever I see a piano. Uh, and it is representative because one of my major um, goal in life is to build resiliency. Uh, and I help companies to build resiliency. I help because I've lived through all of these different places, all of these different cultures, all of these different uh, 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 verticals that I've worked in. Um, and, and so being able to build resiliency in systems and this song 
kind of reminds me of what resiliency means. Um, it is a continuum, right? And so that's the, that's the reason I picked this song. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank <laughs> you.